it simple, really. Great stories with a good cup of tea. It's the Tea with Mike show. On this episode of the show, we welcomed uh, Jamie Prunin. Come hear Jamie's story on how he discovered his love for art, drawing, um, theater, and uh, comic books. As always, grab a cup of tea, sit back, and enjoy. Drop and uh, I knew that that was probably going to be a big, big um, problem with my parents. I was going through the whole, I'm going to have to move out of the house. I'm going to have to find a job. I'm, uh, this is going to be my life. And my brother was the performer in the family. And he was in the drama class. And right before the Christmas vacation, they were holding auditions for the school play and my brother was auditioning, but he was also my ride home. So <laughs> I went to the drama, drama theater and I was waiting for him to do his audition. And the drama teacher at one point said, okay, well, who's next? And then she pointed at me and said, you, you grab a script and go up and read something. And I said, well, I'm not here to audition. And she said, okay, well, you can't be in here then. This is, you can't, if you're not auditioning, you have to leave. You can't be in. So me with attitude, I grabbed my coat and I started storming out of the theater. And she's like, where are you going? And I was, well, you just said I can't be in here. And she said, well, why don't you drop your coat, drop your attitude, take a script, walk up on the stage, read a few lines out of the freaking script, and then you can stay here. So... I grabbed a script, I walked up on stage, and I read the line. And normally, when a teacher makes an example out of me, when I take a look out in the audience, at the classmates, that's usually when I'm getting laughed at or teased at. But this particular time, uh, I read the line, and then I looked out in the audience expecting to get laughed at. But instead, I was greeted by a bunch of faces looking up at me going, awesome do it again and she was saying try reading it like this and she kept me up on that stage i think for 10 minutes getting me to read the line over and over again in different ways and uh the following that that was the weekend and the following monday when i came back to school uh there was about 300 kids in this school and when the bell rang for class change the hallways were just chaotic with traffic students going and this teacher was i think four foot five <laughs> she had taken a chair and stood it in the main intersection of one of, of the of uh of hallways and stood on that chair and was looking for me and when she saw me mm -hmm. in the crowd she called me over and Bruden, come here so I went over and she said I didn't cast you in the play and I was like I didn't even look I didn't think she said, but I want to know why you're not in drama. And I said, well, I don't think it's my thing. It's that's my brother's thing. And she said, no, I think it is your thing. She said, I didn't cast you, but I heard that you can draw. And I'd be interested if you would be willing to do our play programs and posters for the school. Oh, cool. And work on some painting and stuff for the sets and set decoration. And we'll be starting this up after the Christmas vacation. And I said, well, thank you, but I really don't intend on coming back. I, I plan on dropping out. And she said, sorry to hear that. She said, but can you give me just three months? Just give me three months. Come in at lunchtime and after school, work on the sets, work on these posters, and I'm going to spend three months to try and talk you out of dropping out. And if, if I can't talk you into it, fine, drop out. I can't stop you. But if I can convince you to stay in school, you have to take drama next year. That's the deal. So, okay. And when I did all this artwork for the school play, I did... Uh, it was uh, I did portraits on the wall that were it was a play called Boys and Ghouls together. So it was a Dracula comedy kind of thing in a castle. And so I took uh, various teachers in the school and I did portraits of them in the frames as 
various monsters and stuff. And uh, everybody got a big kick out of seeing the the social teacher mm. as a headless guy in a on a tapestry and all this type of stuff. And so people started acknowledging me in a good way at school. And uh, the next year when I signed up for drama, this was taking that childhood of mine of living in a fantasy world and giving legs run it was it was a, a course that i could take in school that allowed me to do what i loved doing instead of drawing it on paper i was up on stage and physically doing it so i loved the whole element of creating and then by the grade 12 i uh i was involved in improv and um I got put on to an improv team that competed at the Alberta Winter Games. And uh, we ended up getting the gold medal as a cultural event in improvisation, a thing called theater sports. And uh, then I got uh, nominated to be the class historian for that. And I was up against the uh, high school quarterback. Oh, and, uh, and, and usually these historian speeches end up being a popularity vote and it's yeah. usually a, and and it's it usually ends up being a speech uh, where they just talk about their click and the things they did football is great vote for me yes right and so i i thought okay i don't know who nominated me but okay that's cool and i ended up winning i i, get, I got voted in as the class historian and the um the uh, art, uh, the language arts teacher who was in charge of the speeches sat me down and said, okay, you're, this mm -hmm. is the first time the popularity vote didn't win. And he said, we're going to take advantage of this. Every year, the kid that wins always spends the speech talking not about everybody, but just about their group of friends and the three years in high school. I want you to talk about high school in general reflecting back on it and so that you're not talking about just you and your friends i'm putting a restriction that you cannot use names and oh. i ended up doing an entire speech about high school life and i did it all in rhyme and uh it ended up getting published by the school board and being used as a reference speech on how to write a proper historian speech and then i got uh the drama award that year the high school drama award and uh, the drama teacher actually told my girlfriend to make sure I don't skip that day. <laughs> Fantastic. So we'll just, what, what a good story. So um, we're just going to take a little pause and today's uh, tea fact is uh, tea plants need at, le at least 50 inches of rain uh, per year uh, to uh, grow. And that comes from factretriever.com slash tea facts. So I know you're a big uh, tea fan. So what type of uh, tea are you drinking today? I am drinking uh, dragon chai. And how does that taste? Like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what is Christmas to you? Like very magical and dreamlike? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I've always loved christmas um I, i've always been uh to me yes christmas was always a, a magical time of year um it, it was I, I i always i remember as a kid looking out the window that that morning you wake up for school to see this the first snowfall hit and and you went to bed and everything was yellow and brown and yeah. fall and then you wake up one morning and everything's white and puffy and powdery and the big snowflake coming down like you're inside of a snow globe and i remember that was always such a, a beautiful feeling when you wake up and look out the window and you see that and in my head whenever i'd see that first snowfall the sound of those ching, 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 ching bells ringing in my head. And it was like, ah, oh, Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. 
Let's see. So uh, obviously, uh, we know as you just told a great story about how you got in, uh, involved in drama and, and theatre. Um, so during high school, so we then uh, getting even more creative. So we kind of like balancing your time between uh, the art and uh, theatre. And did you also do quite a bit of drawing outside of like the school plays and stuff like that? I've always drawn. Um, as I said, drawing was uh, my one of my coping mechanisms uh, for if uh, if um, I had a bad day at school or if I was having a bad time at home, uh, I was always escaping to my bedroom and just taking a piece of paper out. And that's where I would escape to and, and, and draw. Uh, even when I, I had that dream and the, the gift being able to do it at a, at a higher level, um, I thought at first that... Uh, I thought, I, okay, well, this was this gave me a something that I can do that the people will like me. But what ended up happening was um, made me draw my draw my title page for my book report. That <laughs> <laughs> kind of stuff. That'll be right? five dollars, please. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it, but a lot of it was. Um, when kids started growing out of the playing with toy phase, which is right around grade two and started getting into sports, or soccer and these type of things. I loving to play with toys, living in that fantasy world, superheroes and monsters. And so um, kids were making fun of me about being a kid not growing up or, or drawing silly things or whatnot and my parents here and then would try and enter me into art contests kids art contests but what ended up happening a lot of times is i was getting disqualified um they people were saying this wasn't drawn by a kid this was drawn by an adult oh no way couldn't prove it right they they were thinking that uh, there's no way this seven-year-old kid drew this somebody drew this and submitted it as, and so I was getting disqualified. So that was frustrating me. And then uh, I went to a Catholic school and at Easter, they put these blank pieces of paper on all our desks and said, draw something related to Easter and we're going to put it up in the local mall over the weekend and display it over Easter weekend. And everybody drew Easter eggs because it's simple, a circle. And uh, take your crayons and draw squiggly lines. And yeah, there we go. We're good. Well done. Yeah. I drew Christ on the cross, but I drew Christ the way they taught me, suffering on the cross. So I had him with a very disturbed look on his face, like pain and anguish. Um, I had the thorns on him with blood coming down from the thorns. I had the nails having blood going down his hands and on his feet. And... Uh, that weekend as we went up and down the mall looking for my picture it was not a, there was actually no pictures of christ on the cross none it was all easter eggs or bunnies done as circles and stick legs and stuff and uh the following day or the fall after the weekend i was brought into the office and there was a discussion with my parents with about that drawing that i did as to whether or not i had uh mental health issues oh wow so all this negative feedback i was getting over this mm. gift i had um of course my parents were didn't want to they, they were they were starting well okay does our kid have problems or so i was forbidden to draw certain things and so uh Drawing became something I did to, for myself. Now, it wasn't a passion at that time. It was just something I knew how to do. And it was just something that uh, when I wanted to get away from the ugliness out there, it was 
my happy place. But it wasn't anything that I was aspiring to do. It wasn't anything that I was trying to uh, perfect. It was just something I did. And so when I got into high school and the whole drama thing and creativity, um, I focused more on the dramatic arts and the actual art, creative art was just, again, just, just something I was able to do. It was, it was just a gift I had, kind of. Nice. nice. So, um, so, uh, so after finishing uh, school, um, you performed um, some improv with uh, some theater sports uh, locally to you. So did, did you find improv challenging or was it something that came supernatural? Um, I actually loved improv. Uh, again, that whole creative mind. I mean, as a child playing with an invisible friend, I had adventure after adventure after adventure in my backyard with this fictitious friend. And that actually ended up, I think, being a training tool for improv because uh, when you're playing with an invisible friend, that's exactly what that is. You're, yeah. you're making stuff up on the fly. You're, you're creating adventures in your head and and on on the on the on the whim. With and so when it came to uh, doing theater sports, I already had this mind that could just go off on a tangent and and make it up as I go. Which is perfect. It, <laughs> I remember when we were doing plays, and uh, I would always, I, because of my dyslexia, I had such a difficult time learning my lines in plays. So for the first while of rehearsals, I would just improvise my <laughs> line. I get the gist of what the story is, and I'm just going to improvise stuff. And then eventually, and, and, and people knew that was my process. I'd explain it to them. You know, I, I, I see the words backwards, so it takes me a while to memorize. But I'm going to improvise. I'll keep it close to what the lines are, the gist of them, but just bear with me until I get And eventually they would get used to my improvised lines. And then when I finally did learn the lines and come in and, and do, the, do the lines, I'd throw them off because they did uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice and then so i believe so i believe then this leads you to career in stand-up comedy like to, like touring with the yuck yucks in the uh, late 80s and early 90s so can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you learned during this particular experience um i spent uh a time doing uh well latter part of the uh, 80s early 90s uh I just left a job as the entertainment manager at West Edmonton Mall. And uh, from there, I went over to managing uh, a teen club out on the south side called Studio 82. And uh, that was when I started, uh, at theater sports, everybody started drifting off into their own little ventures. Um, Free Food and Beer was a comedy troupe that came out of when I was playing theater sports. Atomic Improv, uh, West Borg, Donovan Workin, uh, Dana Anderson, uh, Kathleen Rootsart, a lot of these people, they all went off and formed their own little uh, improv groups and comedy groups, sketch comedy groups and such. And um, so we all kind of dismantled out of theater sports. <clears throat> but I always missed the improv end of it and i saw that they were doing stuff at at, at yuck yuck so i went in and did open stages and gave it a try and just fell in love with it and uh again it was a it was a whole new uh look at creativity to be able to write something and then walk out on a stage and uh and say something to an audience to try and make them laugh, the challenge of it, and that feeling of when it doesn't work and you bomb, and it was such a great uh, experience mm -hmm. to have. I think every good comedian needs to know what it feels like to bomb, and and bomb a few times, and and know how to handle walking off the stage after a bad night, and know how to handle having a good night, and. Uh, 
I signed on with Yak Yaks and, and did vigorous amounts of, of uh, open mic stages and uh, finally got signed on the tour. And I toured for a while with them. But <clears throat> in the latter part of the 80s, uh, Yak Yaks was the, the only uh, pretty much chain across Canada when stand-up comedy was having its big high in, the, in that area. And uh, so Yak Yaks had an, uh, when you signed a contract with Yak Yaks, basically you signed that you can only perform in a Yak Yaks venue kind of thing. And, uh, but also too, I think when you're doing stand-up, uh, you're, you're pretty much a, a t-shirt of the week. Is how I like to say it. Um, you can be A-lister touring across Canada and things are going good. But once that one other person at an open stage does a fantastic job and Yuck Yuck says, okay, we need to bump someone to make room for that guy to get them on the tour. Well, in order to get him in, someone's got to get bumped kind of thing. Right, so, so it's course, quite volatile. Yeah, so it was very competitive. It was it, it was very cutthroat. Um, once you got in, once you got out of the open stages and actually got on, and uh, so everybody was always trying to make sure they had a good, solid, funny act. And so what we would do is, even though the contract stated you can only perform in a yuck yucks venue, well, we didn't want to go into a yuck yucks venue with some bad material because that could put us up for being bumped to make room for the oh, next for the chop. It's like an early version of the X factor. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what we would do is we would find all these local bars and such that were holding uh, amateur nights and we would book ourselves in as amateurs. And that's where we would try out new material. If it bombed, people just thought we were amateurs, no harm, no foul. But uh that's how we would we would practice and in comedy there's like a rule of six uh when you tell a joke and it doesn't work it doesn't mean it's a bad joke it could just be your delivery could just be what's funny for one crowd isn't funny for another crowd so we say when you have a bad joke you try that joke six different ways in front of six different audiences and after that it's still not getting a laugh then maybe it's not a good joke toss it kind of thing and i got caught performing at the sidetrack cafe on an open stage and and i got blacklisted from yuck yucks it probably sucked at the time but it's a great story like to tell now in your journey and where you've where you've got to today so after a short break from the entertainment business, after, as you just told us, being blacklisted from yuck yucks, um, <laughs> you, you returned to uh, live performing uh, with your own comedy uh, hypnosis show, but this mm. time under the stage name of Sebastian Steele. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how it came about? This goes down a dark hole. <laughs> and, and it seems I have a lot of those in this interview. But... Um, uh, when I gave up uh, entertainment after doing Yuck Yucks, um, I had I had uh, gotten into the grips of addiction. And uh, so when I left Yuck Yucks, uh, I was just upset with, with the entertainment industry. But in that entertainment industry, uh, I got introduced to, to Coke, to cocaine and developed an addiction for that and after i left the entertainment industry that stayed with me and i was getting jobs djing in bars or bartending oh, okay. and looking at retail stores and stuff like that and um and all the while carrying on with an addiction and then i finally got away from the grips of the addiction and I was working in the Bruin Inn in St. Albert. And the Bruin Inn, the, the hotel was closed to the public, but they had a bar in there. And uh, the owner of the bar let me stay up in the hotel. 
and run the run the bar. So I had the whole building to myself. Okay. And uh, it just got to one night. Like the bar was just dead. There was just never any business in there. It was horrible. And mm. I just got to that point in my life where I hit crossroads and just thinking, you know, uh, the addiction, everything. I just uh, I wasn't happy because I love being on stage. I love performing. And uh, I didn't like working retail and, and these type of things. It wasn't there was nothing creative in my life. And that's always been what my life had been about. And uh, so I just felt that I hit rock bottom. And uh, went up into my hotel room and tried to take my own life. But at that moment, uh, standing at the tub with my belt over the thing, I had this voice in my head that just said, you know what, Jamie, this isn't you. You don't know who you are right now. You need to go find yourself again. And when you've found yourself again, then decide if you hate yourself this much. And so the next morning, as I got the bar ready, uh, we ended up having some people in the bar. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, yeah. And this one person came in and at, and he said that he was a stage hypnotist or he was learn he was training to be a stage hypnotist. And he was wondering if he could practice his show on my customers or my clients and uh, bar patrons. And so I said, yeah, no, not a worry. And so as he was doing his show, I learned hypnosis when I was in high school uh, as part of drama or as part of psychology 30, psych 30. We had a hypnotherapist come in as a guest speaker and I was just fascinated by it. And he told me where I can get the books to read up on it. And so I, I'd learned hypnosis. I'd read up on hypnosis. I, and uh, so when this guy was doing his stuff in the in the bar that that afternoon, I knew I, I looked at him and was going, I know how to do this. I get this. I understand this. And then I found the the drama student in me critiquing him in my in my head as I'm watching him. I'm like, okay, you're holding your mic in the wrong hand. You're blocking yourself here. And I'm and then it hit me. Here it is. Jamie, here's your new way to get back out and be creative again and get back out on a stage. And this time, do it right. And, and you don't have to worry about other comedians and, and other, other or comedy clubs putting restrictions and stipulations. Mm -hmm. This is something you can go do on your own, your show, and tour it around. So I gave up everything. And uh, came up with the stage name Sebastian Steele. And uh, from there, I, I spent a year pawning just about everything I could to try and make ends meet. And uh, ended up within the, uh, the first six months of putting the show out there, of all places, Yuck Yucks signed nope. me on as their exact. <laughs> And uh, every Wednesday for three and a half years, I was their house act. And I was allowed to perform in other venues. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This is just a good story. It's, a, it's like a full circle. Um, so how, 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 did, how, did, how, did, how did that make you like, like feel? Like that you were back kind of like where it ended essentially the first time uh, because um, in doing the hypnosis shows, the, well, the first thing I did, and, and I've always been this way about anything that I do, uh, I try and give it my own uh, approach. So uh, first thing I did was I went and I looked, I went and saw every hypnotist out there I could, went and checked out their shows. And the the reason why was uh, I started the Sebastian Steele Hypnosis Show in 1997. And at that point in time, there were more hypnotists in Alberta than there was in all of Canada. 
Okay. Edmonton alone, I think, had 40 some odd hypnotists out That's there performing. And uh, Wayne Lee had brought out um, uh, making um, nightclub hypnosis uh, a popular thing. He was one of the forerunners of that. Uh, Terry Stokes and Anthony Cools, uh, a few of them. But there was a lot of people out there that just figured, I know how to do this, and went out there. And so everywhere you went, every bar, there was hypnosis acts going on. And um, I found I wanted, to, if I was going to do this, with when I, when I went out and checked everybody's show, I saw that they were all pretty much doing the same thing. Everybody was all doing everybody's same material. And almost literally word for word same music everything and i thought okay if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna take it from a different approach so most hypnotists were former magicians and around that time latter part of the 90s this was a perfect time to be a, to switch over from doing magic to doing hypnosis because uh, on TV at that time, there was that guy that went on TV with the mask on and exposed how magic tricks were done. And so a lot of magicians were out of work around that time because this guy was giving away the tricks on TV. And uh, so they went over from doing magic to doing hypnosis shows. And the style of humor that they were using in their in their hypnosis shows and and this is not knocking it or anything that it, it is a standard a style of humor um most magicians when they're doing tabletop magic will use a, what i call segue humor so they would tell a funny little anecdote that would segue into the next trick they're going to do for you at the table there right and that's how they were doing their hypnosis shows was they would tell a funny little anecdote that would lead into the next suggestion they're going to give to someone on stage and i thought use your background in stand-up comedy use your background in improv and let's hit them with a sketch comedy kind of show grab suggestions out of the audience and make it up on the fly get the audience to come up on stage and perform with the people that are hypnotized send the people on stage out into the audience and mess around with the people out in the audience kind of thing and make it a very uh audience interactive show kind of thing and i could stop in the middle of the show and do a little you know a couple of minutes of stand-up comedy <laughs> and so it wasn't just a show where i was relying on the volunteers on stage to be the sole comedy of the show. I wanted to get the audience involved to be a part of the comedy of the show. I wanted to go up and use it as a means where I could do my own stand-up, wherever kind of thing. And I think I loved the fact that I wasn't restricted to only playing a certain room, that I had the freedom to take this all across Canada, any venue I wanted to. Um, at the first part of doing the, the, the first few years of doing the hypnosis show, um, there was a lot of, um, the more vulgar adult humor that really took you to crossing that line, so to speak. And that was the one hurdle in starting out and doing those shows was whenever I was trying to get myself booked in these bars. The bar owners were saying, do this. I want this. Make them have sex with their chairs. Make them do this. Make them. And if you wanted the booking, you had to do that stuff. But once I got my name established out there and people, it really caught on that uh, I was doing something different than the other hypnotists. I had a whole complete different style of show. At first, people were like, what the hell is this? But then uh, I got taken on by Reds at West Edmonton Mall. And I was their house act for seven years every Sunday night. And uh, developed a big, huge following from there. And it got to the point where now the name Sebastian Steele had gotten out there enough that if you booked my show, no, 
you couldn't tell me what to perform. I, I, I would go in and sorry that if you book my show, this is, this how is what you're getting. You're getting this show, and I, I and I all the the chair orgasms and all that type of stuff that was cut from my show. I, to me, the show about uh, my my. My forte with my show, I would tell people to start, was that I'm not here to degrade people or to humiliate people. To me, I don't think that's what hypnosis is about. This should be something fun. A little embarrassing because it's a hypnosis show and I want to get you to act out of your character. And that's where the comedy comes from, is getting you to act outside of your normal character. But it should be that type of embarrassment where the next day you go... (laughs) Yeah, that was funny, though. And enjoy a laugh at yourself. Kind of like if you had a bit too much to drink and you did something stupid and you wake up the next day going, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. But you have a laugh. and It was funny kind of thing. But it doesn't cross the line. And, and, you, and you were probably the, the perfect person to make this work, like just, literally just like based off your own experience and your school experience and some of the rejection that you've had in your life, but how you've like kept bouncing back very detailed they're they're big pieces 18 by 24 but very 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 detailed and uh i had about 30 pieces that i had been working on for nine years and and i thought you know what this has always been my escape was art I'm going to bring these drawings to the hospice and I'm going to finish while I'm there. I'm going to finish. I'm going to try and finish these drawings. And uh, so I bided my time at the hospice out in the common area with these drawings, working on these drawings. And there was another gentleman from another family. And that's how he bided his time was coming and sitting with me and watching me bide my time. He would watch me draw. And he said, where can I find your art? I love this art. I'm a fan of it. And I said, well, I just keep it to myself. And he said, nope, you can't do that. Art is meant to be seen. You need to put this there. People need to see this. And so he convinced me to put it up on Facebook. And so when I put it up on Facebook, it just exploded from there. I was, I was so nervous about putting it out there because of the how I got teased about because I'm drawing monsters and superheroes and all this type of stuff. Still to this day, I did. I wasn't sure how people would take it, but everybody. This is the time of superhero movies. We now live in the age of geeks. <laughs> this is this. The nerd revolution had started, <laughs> and and so when I put it out there, all these people that back in high school were the jocks and the cool people, well, now the cat's out of the bag. They used to watch those things, too. They just didn't say it because they had an image to uphold. But mm. now, with all these movies that have come out mainstream and blockbusters and made superheroes and comic books uh, a multi-million dollar thing. Now, all of these people are coming out of the woodwork going, yeah, I read comics. Okay, yeah, I did. I, would, I was into that stuff too. I just didn't admit it. And so the art took off and I started getting people asking for more and asking me, instead of drawing their title pages, they would ask me if I would draw them a superhero or draw them a their favorite musician, you know, these things. And from there, uh, I thought, you know what? You have had this since you were a child. And it's a gift. It came to you in a dream. It literally came to you overnight in a dream. I think you meant you were meant to do something with this. And so I thought, you know what? We live in the time of social media. Now's the time to put it out there. Fantastic. And then so 
Do you, kind of finally, as we come towards the end, do you want to just touch on um, some of the success that you've had, especially with the with the pop art worldwide and how you've had pieces exhibited in places like the Hollywood Science Musician, Hollywood Science Fiction and the and Hip Hop Museums in Los Angeles? Well, uh, when the passion hit and... Uh, I got swept up in it. Um, I I started waking up at four in the morning with my mind just, oh, I got an idea for now. I got an idea for this and an idea for that and and all these different ideas. And I I was always doing pencil stuff and it was taking forever to get these drawings because they're very detailed. And then uh, I submitted a bunch to Heavy Metal Magazine and Heavy Metal Magazine got back to me and said, OK, we love it, but it's all it's too much black and white. We need color. And I invested years into these drawings and detail. I didn't want to wreck them by putting color into them. So uh, another performer out there, uh, David Jukebox Lee, said to me, have you ever thought about doing something digital? And you could probably use a digital pen and you could digitally color take take a get make a copy of these drawings of yours and then digitally color them and this way you can have a colored version of them but still have the original pencil sketch unscathed so i went and bought a digital pen and i figured out how to work a, a painting app and as I told you before we started this interview, I suck at tech. <laughs> but uh, it took me a while, but I practiced on it and practiced on it and practiced on it. And uh, it got to the point where I went into started I started doing comic cons in Artist Alley and such. And I was having comic book artists coming by my booth and, and looking at my stuff and going, wow. And then when they found out that I was I wasn't using Photoshop because Photoshop is just way beyond me, um, I was using uh, a free Microsoft download called GIMP Shop, and they would look at my art and go, "You did this on GIMP? <laughs> I'm impressed." And so I was starting to make friends with comic book artists that I would meet at these conventions and such, and. Uh, using social media as an outlet to to post your pictures and put it out there uh in instagram uh, i was putting it out there and i was starting to get uh celebrities notable noted people looking at it and commenting and such and uh, this one particular morning i was up at four in the morning and my routine was I would start with my cup of coffee and I would go on to Facebook and I'd scroll a bit of Facebook. But there was a there used to be a feed on on Facebook called trending, a trending feed. Yeah. When you click them, do, you, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And, and basically it was news around the world, uh, events that were happening, things that were trending going on around the world. And that was basically my morning newspaper i would have my cup of coffee and i would check out the trending feed and see what's all going on in the world today and this one particular morning uh, every single thing in the feed was horrible it was toxic there was it was all just isis was doing this uh school shooting here trump's up to this trudeau's up to that politics all just negative 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 there wasn't one single thing in that whole trending feed of hey this person did this really awesome thing somewhere in the world nothing so i thought i want to put something out on my facebook i'm not out to save the world or nothing i just want to put something out on my facebook positive about getting along kindness harmony and I didn't want to do anything that was political. I didn't want to do anything that was religious. I didn't want to do anything that was racial because no matter how good your intentions are, as the last few months of COVID have shown us on, on the internet, is that people will troll. People will find a way to find the ugly in what you're doing. It doesn't matter what. And so I thought, okay, I'll put it on hold and I'll think about it throughout the day and it'll come to me. Then I went on to this Star Trek fan page and the first post I saw was somebody said, if you could make a movie 
that had one character from Star Trek and one character from Star Wars, what would your matchups be? And people were just flooding it with, oh, C-3PO and Data and all these different. And it was cool to see what their matchups were. But then it hit me and went, there it is. There's the perfect forum to show something positive about kindness and harmony. An invite from a, a fan base that's asking two fan bases that have always butted heads as to who's the better. An invite to put them both together. And what's better than harmony and getting along than taking two fan bases and putting them together? So I thought the best one matchup to get harmony and, and such cross was to do a picture of Spock and Yoda meditating together. So I did this picture and then I went back to the fan page and said to whoever you were that put the posts up about the movie matchups, thank you. On a day that I saw the world as a very ugly place, you inspired me to create this. And I put it out there. And it went viral. 18,000 likes, uh, wow. 500 shares on it. And one of the people that shared it was the CEO of the Hollywood Science Fiction Museum. And uh, when he shared it on his, um, I was doing a, I didn't realize it. He was, there was so, there was like 500 shares. So I, I didn't even know who mm. all there. And uh, I was doing, I was hosting, I was emceeing a fundraiser at a local bar. And my phone went off and I look and it's this message from Ripley's Believe It or Not. I'm thinking, is this a scam or a joke or something, right? So I Googled Ripley's and saw the numbers matched. <laughs> The, the actual phone number to the ripping if this was them. So they were asking me if I'd be willing to donate a print of that Spock and Yoda piece to uh, a fund. They were hosting a fundraiser at the Ripley's Museum for the Science Fiction Museum. And uh, would I be able to be willing to donate a print to help raise money for the Sci Fi Museum? So I thought, hell yeah. <laughs> And uh, I went and had a limited edition print run, 250 lithographs. And then I flew down to L.A. with the first three prints off the press. And I attended this fundraiser. And it was supposed to be, even though it was fundraising for the Science Fiction Museum, it was going to be a night honoring Nichelle Nicole, who was the original Lieutenant Uhura in the 1960s Star Trek episodes. And... Uh, so I did a portrait of her as well, too, that I thought when I'm there, I'll just go up to her and give it to her. And it's just for me to her kind of thing. So I went down to the museum and print number one was gifted to Leonard Nimoy's son, Adam Nimoy. Uh, he was part of the board of directors for the Sci-Fi Museum. So they gifted it print number one to him. Uh, print number two went up for auction for the museum. And they had me go up and explain my story about the trending feed and what inspired me to create this picture. So I told that story and it ended up being the highest bid on item at the auction. It outbid a next generation autograph script. And, uh, and then the uh, third print was gifted to the museum itself. And Nichelle Nicole ended up not being able to make it because that was the, that night was two blocks away, red carpet premiere of Star Trek Discovery. That was their new show. And so anybody Star Trek had to go attend that. So she phoned us at the museum and he put her on speaker and she apologized to us all that she couldn't make it. And they held on to the portrait I did of her. And uh, three months later, I got a text in the wee hours of the night and it was her 85th birthday and they had given her the print as uh, as a gift on her 85th birthday and they were sending me these photos from the red carpet of her holding her print her portrait of her they said she wouldn't let it go she she held on to it the whole night her security team were like can we hold that for you and she's like nope and we <laughs> let it go. just loved it uh one of the people that attended the the fundraiser at the ripley's museum 
uh, Lena Cole Dennis is her name, and she uh, is one of the women who worked at NASA when the whole event of, of uh, hidden figures was going on, of uh, all these people that worked on the math and everything like that, the tech, and weren't getting credited for it. And she was one of the people that worked at NASA at that time. And when she worked at NASA, Nichelle Nicole was a big part of the that went on to fight for these people getting their acclamation for what they, the work they've done. And so she had, Lena Cole, Dennis had come down to Ripley's that night to pay homage to Nichelle, hoping she was going to be there. And I ended up becoming good friends with, with Lena. And Lena does a lot of work uh, in L.A. Uh, for the, bla the black community. And uh, she is part of the people that were working on the hip hop museum. And so she saw the work that I did for the sci-fi museum and put my name in there and said, Hey, I know this artist guy up in Canada. And I got the commission to create a Tupac Shakur piece for the Hollywood hip hop museum. Wow. You have so many great stories. <laughs> That's that, that, headspace in me <laughs> it takes it off on a run awesome thank you so much uh, for spending some time with me today and being on the show mike thank you very much for having me on the show it's a wonderful show appreciate appreciate it and uh we, we, we can we can keep chatting I, i i'd love to hear some but like more stories like off air oh for for sure if you like absolutely So, all right, guys, thank you for watching another episode of the Tea with Mike show with uh, Jamie. Uh, some fabulous stories, um, which I'm sure you uh, enjoyed because storytelling is so magical yet so daydreamy at the same time. So if you liked uh, this episode, go refill your, your tea and watch some more episodes at uh, teawithmike.com. Thanks again, Jamie. Thank you. It's the Tea with Mike show.